Greetings, boils and ghouls. You're listening to Crypt Creepers, the podcast where we resurrect the greatest horror anthology of our generation. Tales from the Crypt. I'm Mary Johnston, the first dome on this two-headed circus freak. And with me is my brother, Thomas Johnston. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. I'm excited to be here for our first episode. Uh, I'm excited to be attached to the same grotesquely misshapen body as you uh, as we dive into this slice of 90s nostalgia. Do you think that we're sharing one Elizabethan rough collar or two? I think I think it's better if there's two rough collars. Mm, that means our heads sort can be a, farther apart. Yeah, heads on stalks, long necks. Mm, okay, I like it. I like it. I, I accept it. I accept it. And none of that uh, American horror story nonsense. We both have mouths, obviously. Oh, yeah, so definitely, we can, definitely. So we can pod. Adur. And and the heads can rotate and look at each other so they can argue eye to eye. <laughs> oh, nice. That's a good touch. So Thomas and I will be working our way through the original HBO series, Tales from the Crypt, with a few cinematic detours along the way. Um, and we will be critiquing, relishing, and mocking this pulpy masterpiece one episode at a time. Thomas, why did you agree to join me on this ghoul's errand of a podcast? I was kind of thinking about um, things that were significant uh, in my life and in my childhood, and it's hard for me to stress when I was a young to mid-grade schooler what a big deal Tales from the Crypt was, at least for me and my circle of friends. Um, this was a sleepover standby. Um, I had a friend who did have HBO at his house, but when I think about it, I realized we were probably watching the network rebroadcasts of this show, but it was... It was the closest thing to watching R-rated movies or a horror movie that you could do kind of on the sly. They're about 20 minutes easily digestible. They were Halloween fun size, if you will. And it's a great series. There's a lot of there's a lot of talent, um, a surprisingly deep bench of talent um, when you when you when you look into it. And uh, on top of that, I think it's it's fun for uh, recapping and discussing analysis because it, it they're essentially little 25 minute movies that you can you can, you can walk watch through and discuss so Mary, why do you why are you why are you the other part of this elizabethan horror here with me well i am actually surprised that you agreed to do this for me because i always thought when we were kids that you were kind of a weenie <laughs> I thought that you were genuinely afraid of horror movies. And like, don't get me wrong, I also was too. But I feel like of the two of us, I have always loved macabre stuff more. Like, at five, I remember window shopping the horror section of Blockbuster, never checking anything out, but like just like cruising it. And I always um, lingered over that pop-eyed corpse mod ingenue on uh, Dead Alive, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, at 10, I checked out enough occult slash extraterrestrial slash paranormal phenomenon books from the library to warrant uh, you and my parents having a hushed post-dinner conversation about if I was at risk of becoming a true nutcase. And then in my teen years, I tried my best to look as much like an Edward Gorey vamp by way of Sunnydale's Pleather Strangled Hot Topic as I possibly could. So... This has been with me for a long time, and I'm kind of happy to drag you along with me on this journey, but turns out you're not a weenie at all. Who knew? Yeah, it's a fair point. You know, I I would remind you who's the first person to introduce you to Lost Boys, um, which is, I think, an important and seminal film in both of our uh, personal developments. 
Uh, I also think that my love of cruising the horror section was critically crippled um, by my extreme uh, fear of Chucky from Child's Play, which seemed to be literally everywhere I looked when I was a child at Blockbuster. <laughs> it's true. It was it was also impossibly huge. And don't get yes. me wrong, like my I, a cornerstone of my interest in all things like dreadful and thrilling is that I am also genuinely scared of them. I'm not I mean like obviously there are things that don't I'm not scared of every horror movie. I'm not like crazy. But like, I am not one of those people that's like, yeah, I just like to watch them because I like to laugh. No, I like to watch them because they usually do elicit some fear reaction from me. And because I'm just a classic Scorpio, I cannot help but stare into that void. Like, I love that. That is part of it. I, th- I think that also Tales from the Crypt sort of came about in the in this part of the 90s when, and maybe this is my wiener kid talking, but I, I don't really think that's the case. I think that everything was scary. Every Disney movie had a little scary part. Um, whether you were talking about non-Disney movies like The Brave Little Toaster or Fern Gully, it was terrifying. Um, this was the era of uh, kind of grunge and alternative music videos. So you'd flip channels and maybe the Black Hole Sun video would play and make it so it was difficult for you to sleep. Um, I think that there was this thought that that, that scary stuff was good for kids and, or or maybe just the adults around us didn't care. And so I remember I remember there being a lot of kind of spooky stuff around. And I think that Tales from the Crypt was a what what was in was wasn't perhaps is a big deal, um, and and I think it's difficult to overstate its penetration into pop culture at the time. Yeah, I mean it's the perfect like hundred percent is the perfect like garish, grisly enough to satisfy, but bite sized enough not to be truly terrifying thing for a kid to kind of enter into this genre with. And um, I always kind of felt like it was sort of tailor-made for me also because it always diluted its true fear potential with two things I also love, which are camp, aesthetics, and puns. So (laughs) it really, I mean, like, you can't take it too seriously if a leathery little Muppet is appearing at the beginning and end of every episode laughing and cracking the world's worst dad jokes. It's not, you know, it kind of takes some of the edge off of it. No, definitely. Definitely. I think also our interest in this can probably be traced back further when, um, because just before we started watching things like Tales from the Crypt, um, we were watching, you know, Alfred Hitchcock Presents on Nick at Night. And I think that that sort of introduced the idea of anthology series and, and sort of thrillers, you know, stuff that might be a little bit spooky or intense. And I remember um, as a child watching it and then going off to, uh, you know, first and second grade on writing stories that involved felonious animals being arrested and told they would be placed on death row. (laughs) Death row for murder. Exactly. And uh, the ant of the elephant, may it it never be forgotten. What Um, is that prison like that can hold both an ant and an elephant? consider it's, it's it's just versatile it's like it's like an x-band i mean i mean i already know what that's like it's a zoo that's yeah. what it, that's what it, that's what it is um i don't even those are real places those are real actual places i yes that's definitely true and i do want to um state that obviously that's the best anthology series of its generation another reason you and i particularly may like anthologies is because we 
usually had to do, especially this kind of TV watching, a little bit on the sly. So the yeah, definitely. Fact, so the fact that we did not, because we had we had concerned loving parents who did not want us to become warped, and we were grubby little monsters who insisted on being warped. So <laughs> we had to. It was just helpful that there was no continuity to follow. If I if I wasn't able to to snag some time to watch Tales from the Crypt for a while, it didn't matter. I could wait. It could it could hold. Mm-hmm. No, definitely, definitely. This was this was before binge watching and and in our lives before must see TV. I, frequently, it would seem like I would watch shows almost by happenstance. Like, oh, this is on another episode of Deep Space Nine. So true, so true. And you're like always like pleased when it's not one you've already seen. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, sweet. <laughs> not that that wouldn't mean you would watch it if you had already seen it. Of course, mm-hmm. of course, you had like gotten all ready. You'd gotten a fruit roll up from the kitchen and a glass of water because we didn't have soda pop. You were situated. Right. TV was going to happen. All right. Without any more pussy footing around, let's dig into T- TFTC's season one, episode one, The Man Who Was Death. This series, so this, uh, the series opens with a much more subdued crypt keeper than I'm used to, who in whispery tones compares flies dying in a bug zapper to humans getting executed in the electric chair. The keeper's leathery little hands flip open his tome and introduce us to Niles Talbot, a soft-eyed southern gentleman who loves his work throwing the electric chair switch for the state pen. State legislation suddenly abolishes the death penalty, which means Niles is out of a job. Unemployed and bittered, he begins to attend murder trials and then doles out vigilante justice to the criminals who escape conviction using his favorite poison, electricity. Eventually, Johnny Locke catches up with him while he is attempting to electrocute a stripper in a neon go-go cage. He is informed the state has reinstated the death penalty, and this monomyth ends with Niles returning home to his electric chair, only this time he's the one getting juiced. (laughs) So one of the best parts of uh, every Tales from the Crypt episode is that each new uh, entry ushers in and showcases the talents of a new set of cast and crew. So, Thomas, do we have any notable names uh, with this first episode? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, this was written and directed by Walter Hill, who um, is kind of all over the place, but he did uncredited um, writing on Alien. He also did credited writing on Aliens, Alien 3, Red Heat, that great uh, Jim Belushi uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, vehicle. He did the Warriors, Streets of Fire. Come and, out uh, to play. And later, and later, an episode of Deadwood. This guy is uh, sort of a fixture of sort of a little bit, little bit offbeat uh, cinema from this time period. Uh, also, of course, um, this stars uh, William Sadler as Niles Talbot, um, credited as Bill Sadler. Um, the, the, this, this gentleman really is the patron saint of Tales from the Crypt. He has appeared in the show more than any other ep- uh, actor, which is to say he was in two of the episodes and all of the associated movies. Um, 
he plays Death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, uh, he also plays Luther Sloan in Deep Space Nine, the Section 31 operative, sort of Oliver North in Deep Space Nine. Um, mm. He he uh, wonderfully um, uh, re- mispronounces Dumas in The Shawshank Redemption. He was in <laughs> The Mist, which is one of my favorite um, uh, inaccurate Stephen King adaptations. All um, of them are, was... except for uh, except for Maximum Overdrive, and that's only because it didn't have a book; it just had cocaine. Right, and and the little family inside baseball. He plays Chesty Puller in HBO's The Pacific. Probably most famously, though, he is the deranged colonel in Die Hard Two, who's seen doing nude martial arts and fighting with Bruce Willis on the wing of a plane. Get um, off my plane! Not that movie. He really he really infuses this role with a, with a sort of dark devilish charisma um yeah that that really really is something to see um there's only what there's one other person i'd like to highlight and that's um anyone who's seen this episode will notice that the music is crazy um it starts off with uh, with a kind of um clanging like like funeral march um it sounds like it sounds like a a, a circus or maybe a carousel has decided to, to attend a funeral yeah, and um yeah, it's a it's a dance macabre by way of a child's piano plunking out a circus tune. And then later the music becomes almost like a uh, uh, dusk till dawn Tito and Tarantula kind of steel guitar, um, maybe a little bit of surf rock kind of infused uh, music. And uh, because I'm a American roots music nerd, I, I recognize the guy. It's Ry Cooter, who is a slide guitar legend. This is a guy who's topping. He's played with everyone. He's to- he tops all sorts of lists of, you know, uh, fav- uh, best guitarists in the world, that sort of thing. This is the only musical credit he has with Tales from the Crypt um, and speaks to the, the deep bench of talent that they draw on over the course of the series. Yeah, that's awesome. They're, they're coming in hot. So this episode uh, deals pretty heavily with um, the justice system and specifically the death penalty. And maybe it's just my upbringing in Texas, but I feel like media fascination with the death penalty is deeply 90s. So it really puts me in the mood for some Tales from the Crypt to kind of return to the time period uh, that people would have been viewing this. I think that's right. And I think that something to consider is that... um... The Tales from the Crypt series is an adaptation of, uh, of not just Tales from the Crypt, but a variety of horror comics from the 1950s, uh, Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, Shock Suspense Stories. Um, and that, that, that sort of makes these stories a little bit doubly retro because they're, you know, late 80s, 89, and 90s remakes of stories that are from the 1950s. Uh, and and that, that, that also gives it a sort of interesting... Uh, Patina. Particular double retro flavor. Um, something else to consider is that Walter Hill um, has famously stated that all of his films are Westerns. He says, the Western is ultimately a stripped down moral universe that is, whatever the dramatic problems are, beyond the normal avenues of social control and social alleviation of the problem. And I like to do that even with that, within contemporary stories. I, I think that that works really well, actually, when you consider this uh, episode, especially because I don't think that aside from the steel guitar, there's a whole lot of obvious re- um, Western influence here. But it does deal with the lone man, the gunslinger, the man that civilization is not ready to handle, or maybe the man that civilization needs, but then washes their hands of. 
I agree with that, although I'm sort of surprised because I think that this works to this works more within a horror milieu where it um, it draws you into Niles and then shows you why that is not a good idea, which we'll get into as we carry on. Like, but um, I, I mean, immediately when you meet him, he's he's kind of a weird guy, but he, I think we're primed to like him. You know, he's like. He talks about being an elect, starting as an electrician at the jail and sort of working his way up. And he has this fascination with the concept, of, like with electricity and says, because it's dependable and you can trust it. Um, and he feels like it's like an honorable way to kill another man, which is all like weird. Right. But at the end of the day, he's kind of framed as this honest, hardworking man who is brutally cast off as a byproduct of this arbitrary system that's not really interested in morality. It's just politics and what what the pop what the populace says at the time. So I think we're initially uh, primed to be on his side. We're excited that he is going to be rolling into this, um, you know, unnamed city and and doling out proper justice. Uh, and I think the the episode kind of stacks the deck. the The people he kills, um, at least initially, are obviously guilty and almost to almost cartoonish degree. And uh, he is a Quentin Tarantino esque character. He 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 spouts a lot of kind of faux pro- profound things. He he wears he wears kind of snappy retro looking kind of clothes. Um, but I but I would say that you know we're initially. So the episode opens on a uh, with with some narration from him and a uh, a, man, a condemned man in a jail cell, and it's a it's an African American gentleman who we are revealed or who is revealed uh, killed his boss over a, uh, a, a over a denied promotion. Um, he 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 pulled out his pistol, he shot his boss, and then a stray bullet caught a secretary in the hallway. And she's described as, or he, he's described as, killed her big as hell. It's the only <laughs> luck he ever had. Lucky shot, only luck he ever had. And the dialogue is great. Niles has a very distinct voice. He has a kind of vaguely Southern accent. Um, I think it's worth noting that Sadler apparently is 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 something of an accent expert. And we later find out that that uh, uh, Talbot is supposed to be from Oklahoma. So I, I can't really speak to if this is an authentic Oklahoma accent, but there is. So we see we see that this crazy funeral march music starts playing. We see the guards dragging this screaming, pleading black man uh, to the electric chair where he's strapped in by a by a, uh, you know, sort of unusual looking, uncaring, vaguely southern white man. Uh, and, and there's something very upsetting about this. <laughs> They also um, deny every police officer in this um, in this uh, episode eyes. They are always wearing their hats, even mm-hmm. when they're inside. And the light is comes directly from above, so their visors shade their faces. So you only see their kind of like jowly chops, which mm-hmm. I think helps you helps you not identify them as human and makes you feel feel more engaged with uh, with Niles and the people that he's executing. And you can you can tell you know this this wasn't uh, you know being the first episode this wasn't quite the cultural tour de force that the series sort of later became and you can tell the budget is limited but the production values are really good it looks good it looks cinematic um, you know the the the, the featureless stark rooms work with the jail cell and the execution chamber 
Uh, and uh, there's just all kinds of great, there, there's a lot of great dialogue here, some of which I think uh, uh, maybe um, can be interpreted a little bit differently once you understand where this story actually winds up going. Uh, he, 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 he talks to the condemned man. He, he, uh, Talbot mentions that a lot of executioners don't like to look at the people they're killing, but he likes to look them right in the eye. And he says, you killed someone and now you're going to do the hot squat. It all evens out, don't it, baby? Uh, and, and then he, he, he reveals that, uh, it's been said that electricity, um, goes so fast that, that it, it, it fries their brain before they know what's going on. And he says, boy, I'd hate to think that that was true. Yeah, he definitely believes in the justice system, although I do think it's interesting that in this first story, Charlie Ledbetter is like by far, well, of the of the people that he kills, we probably he probably has the the most sympathetic murder, right? Like Absolutely. he was his, his neck was getting stepped on day in day out in an unfair system. He asked his the avenues for advancement had closed. You can you can kind of like do the like you can make the the jump. Maybe it's race. Maybe there's racism at play here, right? And the person, the innocent that he killed, was entirely unintentional. So that is the man that the justice system in this in this world has caught and decided needs to be killed in a sanctioned legal way, whereas the people later on don't. Another interesting thing is when he's fired when he's fired because of the. Um, like rescinding the death penalty, the warden of the jail basically is like, well, Niles, we can't keep you around because for, to do other things like mop floors or, you know, even do some some um, like prison guard work because all the prisoners know what you've done. And he puts it in that way, which basically he's telling him that all the other prisoners know that you are a murderer, Niles. So even though this is a, a sanctioned, like these are sanctioned killings, even the justice system that is a lot has been allowing them for so long sees Niles as a murderer at this point, which is kind of wild. <laughs> it's a wild thing. Niles Talbot uh, looks at the camera, addresses the camera throughout this episode. Um, immediately after the execution, you know, we, we have his narration and everything. We then are shown a cityscape that's pretty nonspecific. It just looks like a highway. And he, you see him sort of enter the frame and he turns and he speaks to the camera. It's very stage play-like. He sort of monologues at you and reveals who he is and that he's from Oklahoma. And this is where he talks about how electricity is clean and dignified. And he says these these fateful words, it's got to be the old electric chair for me. <laughs> Which again, you know, the, it, it'll catch up with him. We find out that the state has, has done away with the death penalty. And we get what I feel like from watching movies when I was a kid is a very common 90s scene. We have a man who is sort of going cap in hand to his boss, who is a man with a big desk and a suit. Um, I, I, Talbot, I think, is wearing like a chambray shirt or something. He clearly is 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 the blue-collar man in this situation. And the soft man in the suit says, oh, we're terribly sorry, there's nothing we can do. And I consider you, know, you a friend, but, you know. Them's the breaks. And um, Talbot says some things that are kind of, that are, that are actually sort of, uh, I think, a little bit resonant um, with... Uh, with, with laborers, he says, "Don't seniority count for something." I've worked um, he here. Says, I've worked here for over ten years. Yeah, like over yeah, twenty yeah. years or something. I worked crazy in the like generator that. house for two years. I threw the switch for twelve years. Um, yeah. And the warden, when he talks about what Talbot does, he can't even bring himself to say what it is. He says, "You know, the men know what you did." 
he can't even say you executed people, you killed people. He 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 is he is he is too civilized or too soft to kind of go into that. Uh, Talbot, Talbot says, you know, what about my old job? I could have that back. And the boss says, or the warden says, you trained your replacement. Don't you remember? So Talbot's been replaced. He's out. And he says, this ain't the kind of work they give you a gold watch for. In that scene, too, I think that it, you know, the the scene preceding it where you are primed to uh, learn that the state's going to repeal the death penalty. Um, this like, this like kind of, um, like blonde anchor woman says, you know, on one side, the death penalty is, is necessary to deal with overcrowding. On the other side, some people believe that it is still murder in God's eyes. Like that is like what that's that then that bleeds into this scene where this guy can't even address what Niles did for them for you know, 12 years. And I think, and ultimately he says, we can't even keep you around to mop floors because the men know what you did. The prisoners all know what that you were the executioner. They all know what you did. And so I think in that scene, even the warden of the prison who hired this man explicitly to do this job, right. To be the executor believes, believes Niles to be unclean and a murderer not un, uh, not dissimilar to the people that he is um, locking up for capital game. Exactly, exactly. And and we see the warden is in the execution seat. You know, we know that he is the man who signs the death warrant and things like that. So we then transition to uh, Niles in a bar. And Mary, did you notice that all the signs of the bar are Budweiser signs? That's really funny. I wonder if HBO had a had a, a deal with them. Right. Either a sponsorship or Budweiser the only beer that would let them use their signs. Um, And uh, Talbot's sitting at the bar having a having a having some suds. And he's talking to Vic, the bartender, who's kind of a he's a bald, weaselly man. I Uh, feel like he's like a character actor who's in everything. I didn't actually look up who he was. I should have. But I didn't I didn't look him up either. Um, But Vic kind of, you know, oh, it's a damn shame what happened. And kind of kind of suggests that. that, 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 you know, the, the, the liberals and crybabies took away the death penalty. And isn't, isn't that a crying shame? And, you know, we deserve better in this world. And Vic is starting to tempt Talbot. He's starting to kind of kind of goad him. He says uh, he uses some some weird casual racism where he talks about how he's he's they chucked him away like a guinea fresh off the boat. Jesus. Which seems old timey even for 1989. Um, uh, it probably was pulled directly from the comic book. And and I would stress to to the kind listeners that I have not read the comics, but Vic is, is, is this sort of tempting satanic figure that you just know that in the comic, you know, or if this were, if this, if, if you were, if this episode was exactly a comic, it would pan around the bar and you'd notice that, that Vic has like cloven hooves and a, and, and, and a, and a forked tail or something to just kind of really hammer home that he is. He is the devil that is tempting Talbot into maybe doing something that is bad. What I think is actually really amazing about that is so you get this like this like casual horrible racism, and then Niles immediately responds back, and the and the guy then says, "Well, you know, everyone says that all we do is lock up minorities anyway." So, and Niles says, "Well, I never really noticed that. They're all pretty dark after I've cooked them." So yep. you get this sort of weird, this weird. It's a weird interplay where you're being forced to see that Niles is potentially a better choice in the world than certainly this man. But 
outside of the vacuum of this of this episode, you know that you do not have to choose. They both can be bad. Both things can be true. Yeah. And Niles talks about how when people go to bars, they talk about sports, they talk about women, but he's not interested in that kind of stuff. Mostly people talk about his job. And then he says, well, maybe my ex-job, the way one might say an ex-wife. Um, uh, he also talks about how uh, they think it would be a good idea if they could broadcast the executions first to all the inmates to, to sort of scare them straight, but then also maybe to uh, all of the public. And that if that was the case, um, it would be the highest rated show on cable. And we get some great more retro stuff. Um, he says, you know, Geraldo Rivera would be pulling the damn switch. <laughs> yep. So the next, so this all leads up to... Um, this all leads up to Niles sitting in the trial of a one Jimmy Flood, who is a biker who has murdered a man. And he is basically being released on a technicality of how he was booked. And the even and the judge themselves uh, in the scene says, even though I, I am certain that he's that he is guilty. I have to, I am duty bound to release him. And then you just see Niles sitting in the courtroom as this, as this biker guy celebrates and leaves. Um, and he makes eye contact with the camera and you know, you know, that Jimmy's days are numbered. Yeah, so Talbot's going to make it right. This, this nineties courtroom is, this, this courtroom scene is very nineties movie. It's, 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 you know, the, 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 the classic miracle on 34th street, uh, scene <laughs> that every child loves where, where, you know, litigation happens and sl- slick, evil, disrespectful lawyers stand up and talk to the judge who just hands out justice. I, I don't think I realized that juries were a thing watching TV in the 90s. Um, Talbot mentions that uh, he, uh, after, after we get the meaningful eye contact, he talks about how he doesn't have anything against bikers. He used to have a bike himself. He kind of enjoys their outlaw ways, this, this idea that they represent an earlier, cleaner, purer time before the world went to hell with big city lawyers, computers, corporations, time clocks, and what all. Um, prior to the scene, he also goes out on the street. Uh, we see him just kind of on the street watching watching people in a kind of uh, uh, low, more depressed era area. And he says, we eat shit and shit eats us. That death is growing, is pregnant within each. We're all pregnant with death. And eventually, we, we, in some sense, I guess, we sort of birth the death and we die. We eat and drink death. He says, they're junkies that are the only honest people. They shoot a little bit of death in their arms just to tease it. He says he likes it, that, that you know, it's pure, it's honest. And then he says, but, you know, junkies are shit, though. They're two-bit criminals. So, again, we, we get some of this, I, I think, kind of like, like you know, faux, uh, deep, profound kind of kind of kind of observations from him. We see that maybe he's a little bit a uh, little bit flawed. He has these thoughts, but then also has the same prejudices that anybody has. Um, but we also see that he kind of identifies himself with death a little bit, not just in terms of death uh, being something that stalks all of mortal humanity, but also he kind of conf- is starting to conflate himself with being death. He says it explicitly in that scene. He says that's why he has been fired. They can't have him around because the he rem- he himself reminds everybody of death and that makes them uncomfortable. But we shouldn't be uncomfortable because we're all carrying death around with us constantly. It's mm-hmm. just that we can't deal with that fact, so we try to pretend like it's not true. So we see we see he's got this keen little mobile execution rig which looks like a box with like a switch in it and he uh he electrocutes this biker as he's like 
opening what kind of looks like the, the kind of uh, bars that you would use on a um, like a like an urban storefront. And then we see uh, we, we see we see him in the bar again. We with see, Vic, we see Jimmy Flood literally committing a crime like he's about yeah. to break into a store. Yes. Right. And, and and then you see then we see another another big haired lady newscaster um, say, you know, the freak electrocution accident. And Talbot and Vic kind of are, you know, ha, 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 together. And um, and some people say there's no God. And then Talbot says, no, he just spends too much time making assholes. <laughs> so the next people that um, that are on his list are uh, Theodore and Cynthia, who and Theodore is on trial for murdering his first wife. Um, because he was stepping out on her with Cynthia, but unfortunately his wife was the one who brought all the dough to their relationship, so he couldn't just divorce her because he's got to get that money, so he decides he's going to kill her. And I, for, hmm? I love all this 90s courtroom, all these obviously guilty people getting off and like high-fiving their lawyers and smooching their accomplice and stuff in the courtroom. <laughs> And so we aren't, we're told by, we're told by Niles, we don't have quite the, uh, the, the sentencing that we had with the, um, the judge who, who brings that down even for in the court of law sees that Jimmy Flood is a bad person, but we have sort of a, a, a blubber chops, uh, jury member who's defines these people not guilty. So there's a little bit more ambiguity with this, um, when uh, Niall shows up at the world's weirdest ba- bathroom deck area. I don't know. It's got like a shower and then a hot tub and it seems to be entirely made out of like dark gray slate. Yeah, it's a it's it's definitely a movie bathroom. It's the biggest bathroom in the world we see. Um, I think I think it's worth noting that we get some artistic steam room side boob here. We see the woman in profile. Um sort of in this steamy bathroom environment and the the sleazy cheating now ex-husband is in in the hot tub with or in the big raised soaking tub with a bottle of champagne and um she kind of goes in to you know canoodle with him and then Talbot enters the scene fully dressed <laughs> and well, actually, I realize that's a hilarious to thing be fair, to typify if he came in in a towel just wanted to fit in <laughs> If he came in a bathroom, he comes in fully nude. That would be very <laughs> yeah, modern. Yeah, I, I realize so, yes, it's more so, unusual. <laughs> so, but, but uh, the Tales, thing... I mean, Tales from the Crypt loves loves boobs, but uh, yeah. they're not they're not so much on full shots of peen. But right. yeah, definitely, <laughs> and, and even then, this, this is pretty tasteful. I think it's just worth pointing out that this is the the very first nudity we get in a Tales from the Crypt episode. It's not and the last for the. It's not the last for the series. Not even the last for this even, episode. Uh, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. So Tal- Talbot enters the scene, and uh, you know, production values being what they are, there he is just there's steam behind him, which makes you again wonder, like, like what the heck is this bathroom like? Why is there why is there steam behind the guy who just walked through the door? But anyway, he then he confronts the victims and he says, "I find you guilty and sentence you to death." At, at which point, just like as every as everyone who watches '90s crime shows knows. The woman and man start bickering, and well, it was his idea. He said to do it. Rah, rah, rah. Yeah. They both implicate themselves immediately. Well, uh, and it's funny. It's actually it's very specific. So since so Theodore is just basically like, I will give you money to make you go away. Is like oh, his yeah. thing. And then mm-hmm. he wants to know, well, why do you care about my wife? Did you know her? And Cynthia is the one who said. Well, he told me that it was his plan, but I I didn't think he was actually going to do it. So she admits that he is guilty. Mm -hmm. So you feel like, right, so now the audience is like vindicated. You're like, oh, 
right? Oh, sweet. Let's kill these people. Let's totally kill these people. So then when uh, when Niles throws the exposed wires into this uh, this whirlpool tub and shocks them, we don't get to see Theodore die. We zoom in on Cynthia convulsing in the water. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is a little a little hint that maybe maybe we shouldn't be so okay with him cleaning up society where justice won't. Maybe there is problems with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Cynthia would not. Cynthia was an, was not an accomplice to murder. She she merely knew about it, and now she is getting fried. The third killing we see. Um, it, it, it you know we're picking up steam, so we don't necessarily get get so much with interstitials here. The third killing is there's nothing explicitly stated. We see people walking on the street and you see a newspaper with a headline that's something about go go kills boyfriend no 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 uh, it's a go go oh, dancer yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. yeah, it's yeah. Go-go a, dance. yeah it's a brief shot of us on a stepped on newspaper it has a footprint on it, so you can't totally read all the text easily but if right. you if you pause it and then zoom in on it like i did it says go go acquitted for boyfriend's murder yeah yeah that's right that's so right. That's all we know. We don't get another courtroom scene. We never get to hear this woman speak. None of it. It's that is all we know about her case. But like, don't worry about it, because now we get our first real topless, full on nude human woman from the waist up of this episode. It's true. So we go to like the world's weirdest strip club. It's like if a strip club was also just like a club so like there are go-go dancers but then there are lots and lots and lots of people just working it out on the dance floor which as far as i know is not what strip clubs are like there are like three ladies in go-go cages who are who are wearing lingerie on the bottom uh and then like yeah like 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 50 people just sort of standing around and niles is in this environment it's it's this i think may uh presage the bada bing club from the sopranos and uh, he said he has some regressive things to say about women. Uh, he says that women all want want love and they get that from their mamas and all them trashy magazines that, uh, you know, ultimately women only want to dump you or cut off your balls. And then he utters a line that I'm sure sounds real cool to you if you're like 14 years old and you've maybe bought your first fedora or maybe you've uh, your first realized you've, you've realized how your favorite anime really like aligns with the loose structure of the Third Reich. You know, maybe you're starting to experiment with Pepe the Frog memes. He says that the secret to women is to treat a whore like a queen and a queen like a whore, which is it, not great. Not, not great. Not great Talbot. Well, and more importantly, so he's he basically reveals that he has he himself does not feel the need to have any sort of love in his life, especially for women. But like, mm-hmm. I think at this point, we're supposed to realize oh no, you're a psychopath. <laughs> like, like this this kind of like straight, straight talking, kind look, kind eyed man is not okay. Like, and, and we've seen him kill a bunch of people. So we should know that that's already not the case, but now it becomes really real. And he takes, after he, uh, after he says, you know, the, the, his, he reveals his, uh, queens and whores method. He says, "You, you mean the the secret to all women ever?" <laughs> he says that gets them on their backs, and then he says he can't wait to see how this how this girl's gonna dance after he shoots her full of you know full of electricity. And Put he has ten thousand volts through your ass. 
And then he has this like evil glint in his eyes. He knocks back a beer and it pans up and you realize this woman is dancing in this cage that has these <laughs> cartoonishly big. These super obvious wires <laughs> that just kind of yeah, trace like along, the, along the ceiling and then into this. Like a room with a window that's just sort of there. Like it's you a know, factory floor. Like you would. Like you would. Yeah. And um I wanna I, know, how did he set it up? Like where did he <laughs> Who knows? No, I'm here I'm here to check the wiring. It's a code thing. <laughs> Pay no attention to my sinister accent. Yeah. So I think that at this point, it's it seems very important to me that we are left completely ambiguous about this woman's uh, guilt or innocence, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that it appeals on our on perhaps the the Western idea of a hooker with a heart of gold that I think we're supposed to think she didn't actually do this, right? Like we don't have we don't have an ex- everyone else has given an explicit confession. Or has been explicitly told, we've been explicitly told, is a murderer. And she not so much. Niles doesn't even really seem to know what she did, right? But, and he has all these regressive views about women. And it's sort of this moment of horror where you realize that the everyman you've been following is uh, is a monster. Which, kudos to you, Tales from the Crypt. You managed to do that in 20 minutes. And uh, Breaking Bad did it... F- unfold that over seasons so certainly saves you some time i mean mary i don't know like not to play devil's advocate here but i mean talbot has been like two for two and uh i mean we have been spending a lot of time with him he seems like a nice guy he 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 wears a good shirt he has (laughs) do you not kind if psychotic eyes do you think the sex worker killed her boyfriend do you think the narrative wishes us to believe that explicitly i i i uh, all, all joking aside, I think I think it is intentionally ambiguous, um, yeah. and I don't think that uh, I, I I think that we are we are to understand that maybe he is entering the berserker state, like he's now he's now killing with wild abandon. Um, it's it, it's funny. I don't think that the sh- I I don't think that the show really makes it seem one way or another. I don't know if he has only killed three people or if you know. There, there's no sense of how much time has passed or if he's you know <laughs> he's been. He's been right. electrocuting He's not, hundreds I mean, of people. I mean, he um, doesn't have he doesn't have on a cardigan or glasses to show us that extreme amounts of time have passed. That's right. That's right. He now has a cane and <laughs> so, but, walks with a limp right, and an right. eye patch. No, I do um, think, I, it's... but no, I, I think I think I think you're right. I think we are left that this is maybe a little bit ambiguous. Um, also, and... also, this is his only public killing. Oh yeah, yeah. So initially when he's being tempted by Vic and Vic is saying, you know, like, and he talks about how, no, you should broadcast it to the world. It would be the most popular thing ever. Right. Mm -hmm. This is everybody else he killed in their home or like in a back alley cloaked in shadow that we see or within a like sanctioned room in the state pen. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is like before an audience. He has decided he's going to enter the stage as this vigilante. And I think that it's also a little bit about the corrupting force of that, of like Mm -hmm. needing to if you are now no longer a public servant you are a public spectacle and you want people to you want people to see what you stand for and that's the problem and, and i think we kind of see this the initial murder is 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 secret and uh, uh you know a, a, of a criminal doing a criminal's business and then the second time he has taken on the persona of the legal system i sentence you to i find you guilty and sentence you to death 
now does does Talbot think he's God? Uh, does Talbot, you know, Tal, Tal, Talbot uh, seems to think that he will not, you know, he's he's stepped even beyond the authority of the state. He will publicly kill people now for. Uh, and he uh, and he does it because he just wants to watch it happen. And he wants. And that's the reason that you should want to watch it happen. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wants you to watch it happen. Yeah. Well, and we don't get but, to. But, 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 but don't even worry about it because the story has a happy ending. We, we also notice that these very obvious wires have been cut. And he tries to throw his little handle and it doesn't go and it doesn't go and it doesn't go. And then immediately the room is full of cops um, and he is arrested. <laughs> and we find out that 15 minutes before or that, that that the legislature has decided to reinstate the death penalty as the cops who are who have arrested him are taunting Talbot. And they say, you know, since you're such a big fan of capital punishment, uh, maybe you'll get to have some experience with it, too. Um uh, I, I like this idea that maybe, you know, I, despite what I said earlier about the timing, I sort of think that probably Talbot has three murders. So I like the idea that maybe the death penalty was, it was outlawed in whatever state, in states of uh, for, for, you know, about 15 minutes and they decided to go back. <laughs> um, and, and, and this, next, the, the next scene, uh, is, is brilliant. It's, it's exactly like the opening, um. Maybe we see the Talbot. state. So sorry. Maybe maybe the state realized that oh, there's a separation of church and state, so we actually don't give a damn what God sees as murder. So we the next scene is exactly like the opening scene. It's 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 not maybe not shot for shot, but we see him in this in the same type of uh, uh, prisoner dungarees being dragged by the faceless policeman, and he's screaming that the governor is going to get him. And uh, at the beginning of the episode, we see him mocking people who are who who plead for their lives and how no matter how hard a man is he turns chicken shit when when they're dragging him to the chair and they see he says the governor will call but the governor never calls and we see Talbot doing exactly that the governor's going to call he knows what I done for you if if he calls and you all have killed me you'll all get canned he says I didn't do nothing that you didn't want nothing that you didn't go along with I only done what you were too chicken shit to do yourself and the warden uh, is in the execution chamber and leans in and says, Niles, we're terribly sorry that it's come to this. And Talbot's last words are, my job. That's why I did it, because it's my job. If a man ain't ain't good at his job, what the hell is he good for? And uh, we, we there's, of course, another creepy looking man who has hit the replacement executioner who gives him the double jolt. They double tap him uh, with the electricity. Um, I think it's also notable that in this scene, he calls the people chicken shit fuckers, which I bet was pretty strong stuff for TV in 1989. <laughs> yeah. And now we have Game of Thrones, so it all right. works out. Yep. Um. I, yeah, I did. So this this ending is why I believe that this is sort of a this is a monomyth, which is, you know, the, the hero's journey. So you have. You have uh, Niles starting at his home base, which is the the electrocution or the execution room at the state pen. And he goes out and he finds some stuff out about himself. And then he brings that back home with him. And this time to experience, unfortunately, the electric chair firsthand. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so y you have this perfectly bookend story um, but instead of it being a, a happy one of a hero's journey, you have kind of this this grim little tale of how the death penalty makes us all equal. And I think makes a strong argument that basically if you kill people, you are a murderer. There is I, I don't think that this is a pro death penalty uh, 
a piece of media. I see where you're coming from, though. I, I think that I think that multiple things can be true when, it, when we're talking about the narrative, because I prefer to think of this as being structured like a Greek tragedy. Uh, you know, there, there, there is a man with a tragic flaw that causes his downfall. We experience the reversal of fate um, that that he experiences. He has a moment. He has a moment of clarity of discovery, and then he is punished. And then the the audience experiences catharsis, feelings of pity or fear. You know, dramatic irony, not not the kind practiced by uh, Brooklyn podcasters with stick and poke tattoos where they make racist jokes online, but rather um, the idea that the audience all knows what's going to happen, but the characters don't uh, is a big part of this. You know, maybe the first time you see it, you don't know where it's going. But after that, there's all the it's the electric chair for me, you know, good, clean electricity. Yeah, you know, it, almost everything he's, you know, a lot of the things he says, you're kind of like, there's a double meaning there, oh, Talbot, if only you knew what was coming for you. Um, I think that in some sense, maybe all of, well, a lot of horror probably is like Greek tragedy in that the point is to use fear and misfortune and sadness to let you let out your emotions and experience and have a cathartic response. Um, I don't know how this works for slasher flicks where everyone is terrible and you just like seeing them die. But but that itself could be a cathartic act, I guess, too. Well, and so when you we... heard it here first, Niles Talbot, Oedipus Rex. Well, when you think about this, like what about this story makes it horrifying? Is it the fact that he's just simply killing people? I don't think so. I think that the main because like the like the killings, yes, that is a horrible thing, actually. But in um in classic Tales from the Crypt style, it's sort of downplayed. <laughs> Right, mm -hmm. like yeah, it, this... I mean, they do. Everybody gets to chew the scenery a little bit when they're electrocuted and they're yeah. and shaking all over the place. Right, right. But like we are, we are. This is a this is a character piece. We've got kind of a it's a one it's a basically a one man play, um, and everyone else could be represented by sock puppets if it was really really necessary. Yeah, definitely. Um, but um, I think that the real horrific um, horrific device used here is symmetry. Um, and mm -hmm. that taps into our, uh, what's, what's the psychological experience known as the uncanny. Mm -hmm. So you, of course, know advances in humanoid AI has popularized the term uncanny valley, which is, of course, when stuff looks human enough to be familiar but falls short of being convincing. And then it, like, creeps, really creeps people to flip out. Um, but uncanny is like a is a much broader term, which roughly means the familiar becomes horrifying. So, if any of this is feeling is feeling a little bit like musty and uh, and making you think about like creep like creepification of nursery rhymes and stuff, it's of course because Sigmund Freud is behind it. Of course. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of kinds of uncanny. Like I'm, I almost wonder if Sigmund Freud like loved this so much that people are like, "Is this uncanny?" And he was like, "Why, yes!" <laughs> um, but this definitely falls into it. Uh, he specifically cites um, stories that show characters experiencing unintended echoes in their lives, like repetition mm -hmm. in things or things coming back around again as being uncanny. A deja vu falls into this category. Um, or being forced to confront their lack of individuality, 
um, by seeing a double of themselves or seeing them mirrored in someone else later down the road. So Charlie uh, is definitely an uncanny individual later on for Niles. And all of these things lead us to confronting the fact that we are all going to die. And within the story, the man who was death, I think that that is a brilliant choice for the main you know, kind of cornerstone linchpin piece of horror that you would pick, that you would pick the uncanny since it itself leads us to our own fears of death. It's awesome. It, I, I think there's a couple different lenses that we can use to look at this. Um, I think uh, your take is very good. And, and let's be real. This is, this is a weird episode to be the first episode of what's supposed to be kind of a splatter fest, goofy uh, gory horror kind of uh, anthology where you get something kind of psychological, something that's a little bit like a, uh, you know, sort of Garth Ennis um, penned vigilante kind of story by way of, by way of uh, Quentin Tarantino kitsch. Um, uh, but I think that, I think, I, I, but I think it works and I think it's great. I think it, it does sort of set out maybe that uh, this will not be an anthology series that is that is limited to what is surface or what is obvious. There's a lot, this, this, this shows that there's a lot of room in the purview of, of what they're willing to make and show, which I think is, is, is really cool. Um, the, I think we need to return maybe to, um, the director and indeed writers, um, uh, statements that this is a Western, um, in some sense, um, I think that Talbot, you know, as I said at the top, is, is sort of the gunslinger figure. He's the uncivilized man that the civilized man needs and then discards. He is Chris in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Um, that may infuse him with some strange heroic energy, uh, which which I, I don't think is, I don't think the narrative is trying to show us. Uh, but we do see that he, he is... He is the man who is taking out society's garbage and is warped and turned into a monster by that. I also think, though, that the 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 uncanny return uh, uh, may speak to Talbot's hubris. He thinks that he is death. He thinks that he is God. He thinks that he commands, you know, the lives and is better than everyone else, or at least understands what's going on. But at the end of the day, he's crying and sobbing, just like every human being. He sh- he should listen to his own. Uh, his own monologues, really, that, that that death finds everyone, and if you think if you think you're special, or you think you're different, or you think you're above it, you're you're you're, you're full of shit, or indeed, as is frequently used in this, chicken shit. <laughs> right, like you've got, you know, he's not he's not a complete unstoppable force as death is. He's just a flesh and blood murderer. Um, who does exactly what everyone else does and pleads the executioner to give him just a little bit more time. Just a little bit more time to live because he is also afraid of death. Um, this is another cornerstone of horror that fate will twist suddenly against you and give you the other end of the stick that you were previously holding. Bonus points if it's sort of a contrapasso, you know, punishment fits the crime sort of way. I, there's something else that I think is we don't we don't see this so much nowadays. Um, it's interesting that, uh, that when I think uh, the corporation versus the individual sort of a... Uh, you know, perhaps uh, Niles Talbot's socialist hero, question mark. Um, he is a worker who is screwed over by his bosses and is then hung out to dry by the self-same bosses. Um, you know, we, we see this in movies like Aliens, uh, which, surprise, surprise, was also uh, um, 
uh, written uh, by this by the director. Hmm. Whose did you name get, I will did you get these brilliant I- did you get these brilliant ideas from a very uh, a very excellent podcast called Space Bras potentially? Indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but just to say that you know, I think we don't we don't we're not making stories like this so much anymore. Um, but but I think that that that, that Niles also kind of uh, speaks in a way that I think resonates more now than it maybe would have done ten years ago. Um, with uh, with the idea of be, be, being a little cog that's getting ground up in the gears of the system, uh, that 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 you know he is he is expendable. He is he is used and abused. Um, and that that's that 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 is a little bit that that's pitiful and and sad. I agree with that. I think there also might be a little bit of a um, of a commentary about morality, right? Like, so he comes at this from a from a standpoint of morality. Like we we you know these people have escaped and they need to be punished, and I am the I am the justice who will do that job. Right. Mm-hmm. So he is like the pure mor- moral force, whereas you've got all this like red tape and paperwork and the justice system is so flawed that it it can't really wield that kind of morality. But at the end of the day, we know that Niles Talbot is like a man with a giant boner for electricity who probably does not have normal relationships with people. So like really isn't he sort of exactly like the justice system where he has sort of this like flawed sense of his own morality and his own ability to decide and arbitrate who gets to do what in this world and that at the end it's sort of you get sort of this thing of being like look you're always you're always going to get chewed up you are nothing mm-hmm. you are you're a little speck of nothing on this planet and we we're we're gonna you know like the big, big government and big businesses are coming for you. Definitely, and you, you have to wonder. Um, this is outside the purview of the episode, which, which is a, it's a great. It's a, I, I'll just spill the beans right here. I love this episode. This is great. This is a great first episode. It's a weird first episode, and I love it. It's a compact little masterpiece. Um, and, you know, there's not there's not a whole lot of wasted time because they frankly don't have. There's no affordance for that. Um, but I think that. Uh, it would be interesting to know was Niles Talbot a normal guy when when 16 years ago or 14 years ago when he went to go work the generator gee golly sir I, electricity sure is keen and then you know later oh gee i guess if you say i need to throw the switch you know was he was he born a monster or was he made a monster by his job by society and then then once you transgress against society they throw you away yeah i i mean to to even ask these questions also i mean obviously this is fiction so everything everything is possible but to even ask if someone who's the who's the main executioner um in a place that that kills enough people such that that is someone's full-time occupation um makes you makes you wonder like well of course of course it would mess you up of course he probably wasn't exactly like this when he started um, I also think this is a great episode. So time and experience uh, with the series means that I can't say for sure how a viewer uh, in June of 1989 would have felt after watching this episode. Um, but certainly returning back to it three decades later, uh, I found it electrifying. <laughs> um, but seriously, we- it's so much better than it has any right to be. And yeah. sets the bar really high. Um, not necessarily so much from a horror perspective, but definitely from a narrative perspective. Yeah. And, and, and the, the whole, I mean, 
this 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 whole thing lives and dies by Bill Sadler, who infuses the role with this dark charisma. There's not he's monologuing a lot, and there's not a lot of room for him to do a lot of acting really. But the acting he does, the looks, the crazy eyes, it's, it's, it's masterclass. This 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 episode is him, and he is great. And no wonder he sort of became the patron saint of this franchise. So, um, do you think that this typifies what you remember about Tales from the Crypt? I I feel like no, but also I remember that the episodes that 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 certainly I think the way it was pitched was just like boobs and chainsaws and like messed up stuff. But the episodes were were, were kind of more were were more of a mixed bag. Um, maybe not necessarily in terms of quality, but just in terms of the the subject matter, and being maybe a little bit more of a wiener as, uh, as some cruel people may characterize me as a, as a young lad. Um, it's not, I, that, a, that's, it's not that's, an that's, insult. That's, that's part of why I like the show. I mean, th- th- this could be sort of an out, this has, this has some of that Alfred Hitchcock presents sort of energy to it. Um, you know, there's nothing, nothing overtly supernatural happens, uh, obviously. Um, but, and it's about, you know, sort of human evil, but it's, it's, it's more of a, it's more of a thriller or more of a, you know, it's a psychological sort of thing. Uh, you know, the, the creepiest, most horrifying part of the episode is the Crypt Keeper and the way he looks, but it's cool because he, uh, he, he, he's making, uh, dad jokes, uh, the whole time. Yeah. Well, and so I agree. I, uh, just generally speaking, um, I tend to prefer ghost stories or something with a supernatural element in horror as just a general rule. Sure. Um, but I do think that probably given the amount of budget that the f- at least the first season of Tales from the Crypt had and um, and really the, the stuff that it was really good at, um, you know, it's always excelled at sort of these stories where you're lifting up the rocks of the ugly that are covering the ugly parts of society and then just letting a twisted little gothic weird story waft out Um and also, it introduces this whole theme of warped justice and, like, fate making sure that you get what's coming to you um, that Tales from the Crypt comes back to so often. And I almost wonder if um, I almost wonder if that's sort of, like, in sort of a morally ambiguous time and a time of disillusionment, if that was, like, very satisfying to watch. Mm-hmm. Or, it certainly feels very retro to me. And, yeah. very, and very much like it has its fingerprints all over like uh, f- anthologies in general, because you have to yeah. tell a tight little complete story in a certain amount of time. Yeah, you don't you don't have a spra- you don't have a sprawling thirteen episode or twenty six episode season in which to develop and let it all marinate. No, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, I think I was maybe uh, mistaking your retro. Um, you know, I think I think this story holds up, and I think that it may speak better now uh than, than than as i said kind of in the in the interim and, and again i i can't stress i think it's so important that this is the first episode because it shows that there's a lot of room for what what this uh what this anthology which ha- seems to have a pretty limited purview actually can can and will do i also wonder too like if you're paying for hbo right like this, this was not this was not just on general television. So I kind of wonder. I I think that going forward, you and I should read some early reviews. I'm sure they exist of what mm-hmm. people thought of Tales from the Crypt back in the day. 
Well, I mean, so definitely um, this this show was sort of the show that made HBO's bones in terms of uh, <laughs> in terms of um, uh, creating original content. And they were given sort of carte blanche to do this. Um, the they actually is sort of a interesting a murderer's row of kind of funny uh, 90s um, executive producers, um, guys like Richard Donner, who did Superman, Lady Hawk, Lethal Weapon and the Goonies. David Glear, who did, uh, who was a producer on the Alien series, Aliens series, um, Walter Hill, who we have already talked about, Joel Silver, who of course did such uh, masterpieces as Hudson Hawk, Roadhouse, Predator, Die Hard, and Demolition Man, which is a personal favorite of mine. Mm. Um, Robert Robert Zemeckis was was involved at the ground floor, um, and in fact uh, directs the next episode, um, and uh, Michael Hirsch who is the odd man out who, aside from New Tales from the Crypt, mostly did children's TV in Canada. He did the adaptations of Babar and Tintin, which mm. we have both watched. Um, so it's, it's sort of great. Um, uh, it's hard to stress just how deep the t- bench of talent they draw from here is. Um, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger directs one of the episodes. Um, anybody who was anybody at the time was in this show eventually. Um, in Japan, Tales from the Crypt, uh, you know, they don't know what that is. They didn't, they didn't get horror comics in the fifties from the United States. So it was called Hollywood nightmare, um, in the Japanese broadcast. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, the, these, these things really do become little mini movies. Um, and, and it was, and it was quite trendy to be on it. All right. Well, should we rate this episode at the end of, we, I think we've, we've established that we're going to have a rotating and brand spanking new fresh off the top of our severed heads uh rating scale for everything although it'll always be a number out of five so i personally gave this episode four out of five dead men walking i i I, i'll go even more i give this episode five out of five smoking craniums um i think i think this is really good i think this is um uh this 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 is a series defining uh episode yeah, well, we, we sm- almost nothing, forgot. There's there's nothing pretty about a smoking cranium. <laughs> uh, the uh, we, we forgot to talk about it. The outro, um, the Crypt Keeper, we see his feet, which is something that I don't remember ever seeing before. Um, it'll be fun to go through and see if we see him again. But we see him sitting what if we and see we see his his weird little feet, which look like little. Like, he looks like a little child. <laughs> I know. I know. I clocked that, too. And I um. I, I will be interested to see, like, we might see his feet in every episode. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows? Who but knows? Maybe like, it's a false memory. Yes. feet! I only ever remember him. I, I think in my, in, like, kind of my mind, he was always, like, one of those, like, uh, like a head on a stick kind of puppets. And no, then, definitely. And then his arms were probably, like, a human being in, um in gloves like working that that's how <laughs> i always remembered him so i was very surprised to see his feet there it's do- also it's also worth worth mentioning that he does not do his his shrieky laugh um although he is punning at this point he has kind of yes. more of a phlegmy like low in the throat kind of kind of laugh he's a more subdued crypt keeper in this right. first episode and and the puppet you can tell is a little bit more primitive the face is not quite as expressive as it will eventually be but yeah, the Crypt Keeper generally kind of works from like the chest up. Usually, um, uh, he the, the pun here is that Talbot never knew what hit him. <laughs> also, um, also that uh, that it was a like a switch of fate or something like that. He has a switch pun. Oh yes, yes. The 
the Crypt Keeper. Um, so when you read uh, trivia about the series, of course, um, like someone who might be doing a podcast would on uh, to do research. Potentially um, they- only someone doing <laughs> doing research for a podcast about Tales from the Crypt. There's all kinds of stuff about how there are six people working the Crypt Keeper, four of them doing his facial expressions. It it, it feels really good to see this great um, practical effect six, sort of there are creature, people? puppet creature. Um, it's so fun. Is it really six people? Is that like the height or is that from the jump? Um, I, I don't know. Um, and I will get back with you. No, I um here. If you give me a sec, let me let me just yeah. uh, revisit it. That's really fa- that's really fascinating. It's like when you find out that there are like multiple people in the dinosaurs costumes and you wonder how that is possible. Or that like, you know or, or or with these puppets that there's like, like one pe- one person um working just the eyebrows. Yeah, I maybe it's just like the close-up stuff. Maybe that's what they mean. But when they talk about the dinosaurs and they're like took three people to do them, I'm like is someone curled up in the tail? How does that work? They run around. Are these small people? Are they sitting are they sitting like piggyback? Very strange. Spider style swings? I don't know. It Very it just weird. it just it just says that there are that there are six people who work the puppets. So I think from the jump, they used um uh Kevin Yaher, um, who is hor- who's described as horror's Jim Henson, who made, of course, my favorite Chucky from Child's Play, and mm. um also did a lot of work on the Freddy Krueger makeup. Um and the Clear blue eyes of the Crypt Keeper are, in fact, Chucky's clear blue eyes. Um, and now I will not be sleeping for the next two days. No way! Is that Could that possibly be true? That always blows my mind when you read about that. That's like definitely like an old-time Hollywood thing where it was just sort of like, yeah, we spent money on this stuff. We're not, we're not getting rid of it. You're going to shoot... You're going to shoot your movie in the same house that we shot that other movie in. Um, but that's wild. Do you think that they were like, this is imbued with the with the horror of a thousand children's screams? They like placed him in his eyes. His eyes are I, stunning. I, I like to prefer to think that the like like at the puppet workshop, it's like in Blade Runner when they go to harass that guy who makes eyes. Uh, no, really, though, that's got to be this. These guys must have like super fun, like uh, um, Mythbusters esque just workshops. And they're just like, yeah, we got all kinds of glass eyes. You like these glass eyes? You like these other glass eyes? Some of them are googly. Check it out. You know, I bet I bet there's just this wonderful, like bizarre collection of just <laughs> macabre stuff that they that they can uh, kind of uh, use to cobble together these monsters. Bizarre, bizarre. All right. Well, good first episode. Yeah, we did it. I think we have we have a lot of a lot of fun stuff ahead of us. There are two official movies. There are multiple unofficial movies. Um, things that were uh, sp- originally supposed to be episodes that were spun off uh, or became their own film properties th- without the Crypt, Tales from the Crypt branding. There is two seasons, I believe, um, possibly more of a G-rated animated children's TV show, which I definitely also watched back in the day. Um, and the final season uh, of the show, of which I believe are seven, uh, was actually not shot in the United States, but rather was shot in uh, the UK. So there's a British season, too, at the end of all of this. Um, there was a children's game show, which I never watched. Wait, 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 wait. So the seventh season is actually the British season? Yes. Weird. <laughs> I believe so. Weird. The, uh, ori- the original brief was that this was going to be three seasons, um, but it it was successful and kept making money. So TV being what it what, what it is... Um, it continued to be renewed. Got it. Got it. 
So, of course, uh, YouTube fairly consistently has Tales from the Crypt episodes um, that you that you certainly may may watch. I, I don't want to know anything about it because, of course, this is a totally professional operation. So That's Thomas right. and I are currently watching the DVDs, which we got on Amazon for about 20 bucks. <laughs> if you yeah, would like they're... to follow around along with us and support Tales from the Crypt, and support this podcast, please use our Amazon affiliated link found on the description of this episode or our website to purchase your own set of these DVDs. Which seems like, it seems like a great idea to maybe throw some bones John Kassir's way. Um, he is, of course, the voice of the Crypt Keeper and is by all accounts a very, very nice guy. <laughs> How do you know he's such a nice guy? Just uh, research, research and YouTube. <laughs> How do you? Why do you have any business knowing who John Kastir is? Well, he he is a uh, he's a comedian and 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 of course did all the voice acting for this. He also carried a heavy load, being the only recurrent theme through this. He would do things where he would call in and do that do that terrible raspy voice in character for like radio spots and radio shows and uh, all this stuff. But um, even to this day, there's all kinds of videos of people like uh, you know. Uh, have, having him uh, sign cleavers or do the voice at various uh, fan conventions and everything. Uh, and just apparently he's a class act. That's a wonderful, terrible power. <laughs> um, so the next time, uh, it will be Christmas in October before Tim Burton made that trendy. Which is to say we'll be covering a holly jolly little tale, episode two from season one, all through the house. Thank you for listening to Crypt Creepers. Please check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the platform of your choice to subscribe, rate, and review us. And uh, be sure to visit outrageousmechanisms.com slash crypt-creepers to see our show, no- show notes um, and find other little wonderful grim goodies. Till next time, kitties. Go to bed on time, wash your ears, and do your homework. You never know who might be shocking you. <laughs> <laughs> Just an outrageous, outrageous production. production.